Hi and welcome to Paul Martin's Catholic Podcast. I'm Paul Martin. I used to be a Presbyterian, then Pentecostal lay preacher. After studying the Bible and church history afresh, I converted to Catholicism in December 2017. I'm talking today about the Sabbath and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventists are a religion that was started in 1863. They number about 16.5 million people and they say that all of us Christians need to worship on Saturday because that was when the Old Testament, the people of the Old Covenant in the time of Moses, worshipped on Saturday. Now, it's absolutely true that the Old Testament people under the covenant of Moses, the Israelites, worshipped on Saturday. That was when their Sabbath was. But is it commanded for Christians today? What does the Bible say? What does church history teach us? So we're going to have a look at that. First, we're going to have a look at what the Bible says about the Sabbath. Then we're going to have a look at what the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches and doesn't measure up with Scripture like they claim. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was started by Ellen G. White. Uh, she lived from 1827 to 1915 and she claims that over 2,000 visions or dreams that she got from God and that she was commanded uh, by God to write all these books. So first we're going to look at what scripture says, then, then we're going to see whether or not it measures up with what the SDA church says. Then we're also going to look at some of the other bizarre teachings and doctrines of the SDAs. So, my friends, uh, the Sabbath was the day of rest, which was the seventh day, which, needless to say, that is Saturday. And in the Ten Commandments, God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Seventh-day Adventist Church thinks that Sunday is an evil day to be having an assembly and that it's some evil conspiracy uh, of Satan. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, however, when we read about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is what it says, Exodus 12, 16. In the first day there shall be to you a holy convocation, and in the seventh day a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done in them, except that which every man must eat, that only may be done by you. So it says that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread... The first day of the week, Sunday, was a day of worship for a solemn assembly, and the seventh day was as well. So Sunday worship was even a part of the covenant of Moses. 
And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, God said that he would bring about a new covenant and it would not be like the old one. And there were several different covenants. God had a covenant with Adam, then he had one with Noah, then he had one with Moses. And then finally, the one with Moses was going to be replaced by the new covenant. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord prophesies about Israel. I will call, I will also cause all her celebrations to cease. Her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn assemblies. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, talks about the Son of Man, who was Jesus, bringing in a new everlasting kingdom. So his new covenant was going to be permanent. It was going to never end. It would replace the covenant of Moses, and it would be one that would never end. Now, they still insist, however, that we're supposed to observe the seventh day and worship on the seventh day. And we're supposed to observe the law, meaning the law of Moses. But when you look at the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, they don't practice the whole law. They don't practice the sacrifices of animals. They don't celebrate the Feast of Weeks. They don't observe the Sabbath year where every seven years the Israelites would rest the land. They don't do that. And most of them drive to church or use some form of work or transport when the Israelites were not supposed to do it. Now they think, ah, look, the ancient Israelites got together and worshipped on the seventh day, so we can do that too. And my question is, have you actually read scripture? Have you read the Torah and read what was involved in observing the Sabbath? I'm going to say just one thing. James chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says that if you follow try and follow all of the law, but you stumble in just one point, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. See, following the Torah is an all or nothing thing. You either follow it all perfectly, and only Jesus was able to do that, or you accept that we're not under that Old Testament law. Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 5 and the whole of Galatians in fact makes it very clear that we're no longer under the covenant of Moses. But let's go back to the Torah and let's have a look at some of these laws. Exodus chapter 31 verse 15 says that the death penalty was prescribed for anyone who did work on the Sabbath. 
And we might think, well, that just means really hard labour or something. To which I say, no, no, no. It says no work. And let's have a look at the definition of an example of work that brought about the death penalty. Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. And I'm reading from the World English Bible because it's public domain, has no copyright, and it has no thousand these. It's in modern English. Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. While the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been declared what should be done to him. Yahweh said to Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. All the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as Yahweh commanded Moses. So my question to Seventh-day Adventists is who's going to carry out the stoning to death of people who violate the Sabbath? Another thing about the Sabbath is that God gave that command for a specific time for the Israelites in a specific place, which was the boiling hot Middle East, as they were travelling from Egypt to Israel. And to obey the Old Testament law, you would have to live in a hot climate. Exodus chapter 35 verse 3 says, You shall not kindle a fire throughout your habitations on the Sabbath day. Now Ellen G. White apparently was very ignorant of this verse. This is what Ellen G. White in her book, The Desire of Ages, page 204, paragraph 1. Ellen G. White says, The Jews had so perverted the law that they made it a yoke of bondage. Their meaningless requirements had become a byword among the nations. Especially was the Sabbath hedged in by all manner of senseless restrictions. It was not to them a delight, the holy of the Lord, and honourable. The scribes and Pharisees had made its observance an intolerable burden. A Jew was not allowed to kindle a fire, nor even to light a candle on the Sabbath. As a consequence, the people were dependent upon the Gentiles for many services, which their rules forbade them to do for themselves. They did not reflect that if these acts were sinful, those who employed others to perform them were as guilty as if they had done the work themselves. They thought that salvation was restricted to the Jews and that the condition of all others being already hopeless could be made no worse. But God has given no commandments which cannot be obeyed by all. His laws sanction no unreasonable or selfish restrictions. End quote. Now, 
she says that the Jews were adding traditions to the Sabbath that were not in scripture and making it too burdensome. She writes, a Jew was not allowed to kindle a fire or even light a candle on the Sabbath. Um, obviously, she didn't know about Exodus 35, 1 and 3, that you shall not kindle a fire throughout your habitations on the Sabbath day. And this is an example of the kind of person she was. We'll look a bit more at her later, but back to the scripture. But that gives you an example of how flagrantly she contradicted the Bible itself. So now we go to the New Testament times where the new covenant was being introduced by Jesus. Did Jesus observe the Sabbath? Did Jesus command us to observe the Sabbath? Let's have a look at what the scripture says. John chapter 5, verse 18. And it says, Jesus not only broke the Sabbath observance, but also made himself equal with God, calling him his own father. Jesus not only broke the Sabbath observance, John chapter 5, verse 18. Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. But the Pharisees, when they saw it, said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But then he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for those who were with him, but only for priests. And Jesus was actually saying, yes, they are breaking the Sabbath, and we're in good company because King David also broke the law when he ate the showbread that was only for priests to eat. And a little bit further in verse 8, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, tell us that the Sabbath was only a shadow of things to come. It says, Let no man therefore judge you in eating or in drinking or with respect to a feast day or a new moon or a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ's. And so the Sabbath day, along with many of the parts of the Old Testament, were a shadow of things to come. So that was how the Bible describes the Sabbath. It's a shadow of things to come. But how does it describe the Lord's day and the resurrection of the Lord? Is the resurrection that important? 
or is it just an afterthought? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 14 If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. He could make it clearer that our entire faith rests on the resurrection of our Lord. And Hebrews chapter 4 verses 8 and 9 refers to another day of rest that was coming with Christ. Here's another interesting thing, is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And this is found in Mark chapter 10 verses 17 to 23, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 27, and I'll be reading the one from Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. So, behold, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not offer false testimony. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now, in all three of these accounts, Jesus never mentioned the Sabbath, but he gave the other commandments like do not steal, do not kill, honour your father and mother. But was there any Sunday worship in the New Testament? Jesus prophesied on the final day of the tabernacles, which was the Sunday, John chapter 7 verse 37. In Matthew chapter 28 and John chapter 20 verse 28, Jesus was worshipped by his disciples, which was the day after the Sabbath. Pentecost was on a Sunday in Acts chapter 2. That was the birth of the church. And in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, Paul the Apostle broke bread and did and preached and he resurrected a boy from the dead on a Sunday. Acts 20 verse 7. On the first day of the week, when the disciples were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and continued his speech until midnight. So he did it on Sunday, and at midnight he finished. And there's also worship in the early church on Sunday. We find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 and 2. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I commanded the assemblies of Galatia, you do likewise. On the first day of the week, let each one of you save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. So it was done on Sunday. And Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice of a trumpet. So he got his revelation for the churches on Sunday in the Gospel of John. The resurrection was the most significant thing that happened with Christ. And so we see that in the Old Testament, God had a harsh covenant under the laws of Moses. And finally, a Messiah came who delivered them from the law of sin and death and set them free. So now we go to our next part, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And from the early 2nd century, we have numerous early church fathers, such as Justin Martyr, who testified that Sunday was the day of worship for Christians, and this originated from the apostles. Let's have a look at what they believe and what they claim. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And God built his true church, the Catholic church. We Catholics can trace our popes back to St. Peter centuries before Constantine. The SDA church, on the other hand, didn't come into existence until 1863, to which I say, well, where was the true church before that? And Ellen G. White joined the Millerite church, and they followed a man called Miller who said that Jesus was going to return in 1844. And when he didn't come that year, it was referred to as the Great Disappointment. But Ellen G. White, who claimed she was a prophetess, got a revelation, supposedly. And she said, no, 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 Jesus did return in 1844. But he returned invisibly as an investigative judgment. It was a secret investigative judgment. And she justified this idea that Jesus returned secretly in 1844 from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Daniel says, I saw the night visions, and behold, there came with the clouds of the sky one like a son of man, and he came even to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Amen to this scripture. But 
It says absolutely nothing whatsoever about some secret return of Jesus. And where does it mention 1844 AD? It's not there. I don't know where on earth they give that justification. They claim that that was the year that Jesus went into the tabernacles of the Holy of Holies in heaven. Again, that is a silly thing because Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says past tense that Jesus already entered in once for all into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. So she had a very, very shoddy uh, idea of scripture and a very, very scandalous thing about her is plagiarism. She claimed she was a great prophetess. Most of Ellen G. White's writings in her book, The Great Controversy, were just taken from a book called Life Incidents by J. White in 1868. Most of the contents of her book, Desire of Ages, were copied from a book called The Great Teacher by John Harris, written in 1836. So, The Desire of Ages, which was written in 1898, was plagiarised from a book written in 1836. And The Great Controversy, which was written in 1888, was plagiarised from Life Incidences of 1868. And some examples are The Great Controversy, paragraph 399, comes from Life Incidents, paragraph 162. The Great Controversy, paragraph 631 is copied from an 1868 book by Daniel March called Night Scenes in the Bible, paragraph 453. In 1892, she wrote a book called Steps to Christ, and her paragraph 96 is plagiarised from an 1860 book by Alman Underwood called God's Will Known and Done, paragraph 291. And Ellen G. White's 1923 book, Testimonies to Ministers, paragraph 16, is plagiarised from John Harris's 1836 book, The Great Teacher, paragraph 158. And she also, The Desire of Ages, 1898, paragraph 466 comes from The Great Teacher, paragraph 126. And these are just a few snippets, a few examples of her plagiarism. So I remember years ago, some Seventh-day Adventist missionaries gave me a book called The Desire of Ages. And I thought, wow, this is quite a insightful book. She really did have some pretty 
brilliant ideas about who Jesus was. And then I discovered that most of what she'd written there was just plagiarised. Well, I was very disappointed, but I thought, ah, there you are. She was also very, very anti-Catholic, and Seventh-day Adventists call the Catholic Church the Whore of Babylon. And when you read Revelation, you find that the mother of harlots is a great city, not a great church, Revelation 17, 18 and chapter 18, verse 10. The mother of harlots killed the prophets, that means the Old Testament prophets, Revelation chapter 18, verses 20 and 24. The mother of harlots were headed by kings, not popes, Revelation chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. And Revelation chapter 17, verses 10 and 11 says that the horns, the heads of the beast, represent seven kings five are dead or five have fallen one is and one will rule for a short time after him you see the roman empire was a republic ruled by a senate for centuries and then under julius caesar's time he became dictator and he was even called emperor by some people and then his successor Augustus was considered the first emperor, although the ancient Romans actually regarded Julius as the first emperor. And so Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula and Claudius were all dead when the book of Revelation was written. And the sixth emperor was Nero, whose name adds up to 666. And he was followed by an emperor who ruled for a short time for seven months, Galba. And so Revelation is referring to the beast was pagan Rome, the harlot was Jerusalem. And the mother of harlots was Jerusalem, the city that had killed the prophets. And the Vatican City is outside of the seven hills that make up Rome. It's way, way, way west across the Tiber River. And the mother of harlots killed Jesus, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. The mother of harlots is Jerusalem. But they claim that these prophecies that happened many centuries ago, 2,000 years ago, are going to happen and it's the evil Catholic Church that's going to do it. And she claimed and prophesied that the Catholic Church was in a conspiracy to force everyone to worship God on Sunday. And in her well-plagiarised book, The Great Controversy, page 449, She said that worshipping God on Sunday is the mark of the beast. Reality is that we Catholics, we worship God on Sunday, yes. We also worship God on Saturday. 
and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Why? Because we're like the early church that broke bread and gathered together every day of the week. Acts chapter 2 verse 46. We Catholics worship God on Sunday as the most important day because that was his resurrection. But we regard every day as sacred, including Saturday. We do every day. Seventh-day Adventists do it one day a week. We do it seven days a week. They also claim that the soul sleeps at death until the resurrection. And this is debunked in many parts of Scripture. And if you've got a pen and paper handy and you want to look up these verses, have a look at Ezekiel chapter 32 verses 21 and 30 to 31. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Rachel lived in the time of Genesis and many centuries later in the time of Jeremiah we're told that Rachel, a godly woman, was weeping for the Jews for what they were suffering in the time of Jeremiah. She was in heaven interceding for them. This is why we Catholics believe that saints pray for us because they're alive in Christ in heaven and they're interceding for their people. 2 Maccabees chapter 15 verses 11 to 17 tells us that Onias the priest who was dead, a martyr, and the prophet Jeremiah were praying and interceding for the Maccabean Jews in heaven. Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 talks about the rich man and Lazarus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says, We are of good courage, I say, and are willing rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So when the body dies, their soul goes to heaven. And Jesus also said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say you'll be sleeping until the resurrection. Philippians chapter 1 verse 23 says, But I am in a dilemma between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Yet to remain in the flesh is more needful for your sake. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says that we are surrounded by, by a great cloud of witnesses in heaven. And this is after he's mentioned all those deceased saints of the Old Testament. And then a little bit further on, verse 23, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly 
Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. And then finally, lastly, we come to Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, Master, the holy and true do not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So those who had been martyred were not unconscious, soul-sleeping. No, they were in heaven crying out and interceding for the earth and crying out for God's judgment. Uh, another issue she believed in is she insisted on being a vegetarian and said that it was God's will for people to be vegetarian and not to eat meat. Now, I very strongly encourage someone that if they want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, go for it. There's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. I was a vegan myself for a few months and it ruined my health. I know plenty of people who do it and they seem to be okay with it, but many of us can't do it and I physically couldn't do it. But is she right? Is this so-called prophetess Ellen G. White correct in saying that we shouldn't eat meat? Whoa, let's see what the Bible says. John chapter 21 verses 7 to 13, Jesus and his disciples were fishermen and they didn't just hunt fish for the fun of it, they ate it. They ate fish, they ate meat. Jesus grew up in a Jewish home where they had the Passover where you eat a lamb. And in the Old Testament, the Israelites would eat their sacrificial animal that was brought for the sacrifice. They ate meat as well. It was encouraged and allowed in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Leviticus 11 lists some animals people could eat and other animals they couldn't eat. And Genesis chapter 9 verses 3 and 4 says that they could eat anything that crawled on the earth. Romans chapter 14 says that you're not to judge others by what they ate or didn't eat. People are allowed to abstain from foods if they don't want it, but they're not to judge those who do. 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 says, Those who forbid certain kinds of meats are teaching a doctrine of devils. And in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16, Peter, who was the first pope, the foremost of the disciples, had a vision from God. And he was told, take, kill and eat. And in Acts chapter 15, the disciples got together and they decided which of the Torah still applied for Christians. 
and all they gave were four laws, four do-nots. So what we follow as Christians is anything that's taught in the New Testament and any of these four laws that were given in Acts 15. And it was no blood, no food of a strangled animal, no foods sacrificed to idols, and no sexual immorality. So anything that the Torah defined as sexual immorality, we were to avoid doing it. Another thing about Ellen G. White and her SDA church is they believe in sola scriptura, meaning that the Bible alone is their only source of information and authoritative teaching. And yet, and yet, contradicting this is their idea that Ellen G. White was a prophetess. If she was a prophetess, as they dogmatically claim, then they ought to add her writings to the Bible. And they pretty much do. They interpret the Bible through Ellen G. White's lenses, through her interpretation of Scripture, which was incredibly shoddy, as we've already shown in this podcast. And I don't think she took Scripture reading that seriously. I think she was a deluded old bat who imagined that she could make a name for herself by plagiarising other people's writings. The Bible itself does not teach Sola Scriptura. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 Paul says to hold fast to the traditions whether spoken or written. So the church had a lot of traditions floating around that were never written in the Bible but were handed down by the apostles and their successors, the bishops, and are recorded in the writings of the church fathers or church councils. The Bible itself is not for private interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 says that no scripture is for private interpretation. And the Bible itself says that much of scripture is hard to understand. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't say grab a Bible and just read it for yourself and interpret it however you want. It says lean not on your own understanding. And Acts chapter 8 verses 30 and 31, Philip meets the Ethiopian official And he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? And Philip, who was one of the apostles, explained it to him. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16 says that much of Paul's writings, which is part of scripture, are hard to understand. And he says certain people therefore twist it to their own destruction. But nevertheless, that leaves a question. If scripture is not for private interpretation, 
and many parts of it are hard to understand, then who has the authority to interpret Scripture? And the answer is the true church. The church that existed back when the New Testament was written was the Catholic Church. It's the same Catholic Church as today. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And that's why I trust 2,000 years of Catholic tradition over one crazy lady from the 19th century who had all these batty ideas that Jesus secretly returned in 1844 and all these other preposterous ideas and that worshipping God on Sunday is the mark of the beast and who had a very, very shallow and shoddy interpretation of scripture which was her own interpretation, her private interpretation of scripture. So I hope I have not sounded too harsh in my condemnation of the SDA church But the SDA Church and its literature is very, very harsh and condemning in the way it condemns Catholicism. Some Seventh-day Adventists are wonderful people who really love Jesus. And then there are others who are very cultish and keep to themselves. I think our best thing to do is to be humble And to show the truth, show what the scripture says, show what history testifies to both the Catholic Church and the SDA Church. Another thing I dislike about the SDA Church is that many of their hospitals have abortions and they're very shallow on that area. Now, in fairness, there are plenty of Catholics who are also weak on abortion. But see, these Catholics are going against Catholic teaching, which vehemently condemns abortion in all circumstances, while the SDA Church is very wishy-washy and shallow on that. So we see that in summary, the Sabbath day was part of the old covenant of Moses. It was foretold that it would pass away. Jesus, who was the Lord of the Sabbath, broke the Sabbath and replaced it. In 1863, many, many centuries after this had already been established, along came a woman calling herself a prophetess, and she started up all these crazy ideas which are either laughable or they were plagiarised off someone else. So I would encourage my friends in the Seventh-day Adventist Church to rethink their loyalty to that church and to consider the claims of Catholicism. Never mind what you've been told by SDA propaganda, but have a look at what Catholicism says about itself. Thank you and God bless.